0: I think we're having a few problems with the YouTube, but it's not a problem because we've got a captive audience. And um, what we'll do is that I will definitely upload this up to YouTube uh, once we have finished our conversation. But for those who have just joined us, uh, we want to welcome you. Uh, The the conversation today is very much about how do white-led, white-majority churches engage with this issue of Uh, COVID-19 and the disproportionality uh, which impacts uh, black and brown people, what we've seen across uh, the UK. And really, when myself and Robert started talking about this, it was prior to uh, the the tragic murder of, of George Floyd and therefore, uh, I think it's now taken even more significance on this conversation, because we're in this we're in this place in this space where something seems to have shifted um, across the world. Uh, there are may, maybe a, a greater somewhat scrutiny, but there's definitely something which is going on where people are looking at race and racism in a way which I've not seen um, in, in my lifetime before. Um, And therefore, it feels only right that we have an opportunity to discuss what is the church response from a UK perspective. So, um, before we get in, let's just do some housekeeping. And uh, basically, what we're going to be doing, we're going to have a conversation and we're going to talk about the disproportionality around COVID-19 on uh, black and brown people across the UK. Each panel member will have an opportunity to to share their thoughts Um, and then we'll have a bit of Q&A which if you guys have signed up to Zoom you are very very fortunate to be in a position here where you get to ask some questions directly Um, please tell any of your friends that we have had some problems with the YouTube link so this will be recorded and I will upload it tonight so everybody can engage with it that way I think it's a really important conversation Um, but let me just the first thing I want to say is that this uh, evening's event is sponsored by a charity called Power to Fight, uh, which empowers communities to end youth violence. Um, and while this event is free, um, I'd love to encourage you if you feel that you'd like to donate, um, just go to our go to the website, uk, and you just go to the donate page, and whatever you can give will be massively helpful. That money goes towards supporting families who've been impacted by this issue. It goes to equipping any institution which is front-facing with this issue around youth violence and it's also going towards some very important research specifically around culturally competent therapy for young people and families impacted by youth violence so it's a great cause I would say that because I'm the CEO of the charity just to have complete transparency um, but this is something which we we um, across the church land are beginning to engage with around the area of view funds. So let me set up the introductions. As I said earlier on, these guys have got letters behind their names, titles, there's 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 monarchs in the room and all sorts of stuff. So this is this is good. This might be feel a bit long but it's only right that we introduce everybody here. So first and foremost we have Professor Robert Beckford. Um, Professor Robert Beckford is somebody I've I've known in the last couple of years. Uh, when I uh, launched my book, I got a phone call and the guy was like, it's Robert Bedford, and I was like, oh, my goodness. And basically, Robert grilled me for about two hours. That's the first time how we met, and he grilled me for about two hours on the phone just to make sure I was kosher. And I must be okay because he did endorse my book, so that, that was good. But Robert is a British academic, theologian, and currently a professor in religion and culture in the African diaspora in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Canterbury Christchurch Universities whose documentaries for both the BBC and Channel 4 have caused debate among Christian and British religious communities. <clears throat> Welcome Robert. Thank you, our thank second, you. No problem. Our, our second guest, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Henry, who until recently, very recently, was the National Advisor Minority Ethnic Anglican Concerns lead mission and public affairs for the church of england that is a title um and 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 doesn't doesn't we don't just stop there and former chief executive of rota race on the agenda similarly we met i went and interviewed um uh, dr elizabeth for my book and again what i thought was going to be a short conversation turned out to be like a two-hour conversation which was brilliant for me and it was amazing and Also, i got her to endorse my book as well. So this is how I do it. I basically get in there and they endorse things for me. So that's great. Our third guest, um, Reverend Dr. Sharon Prentice, is the intercultural mission enabler and Dean of Black and Minority Ethnic Affairs, Church of England, Birmingham, and Honorary Fellow, Edward Cadbury Centre, Birmingham University. Sharon is also author of the brilliant Every Tribe, stories of diverse saints serving a diverse world. We met at a uh, a launch event for uh, my book last year in Birmingham, we were both on a panel and it was one of those moments where uh, Sharon has spoke with such eloquence and wisdom and I was really scared (laughs) because I was thinking, oh no, now I've got to say something Um, as wise. I'm not sure I pulled it off, but Sharon was was amazing. (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much and uh, so it's great just to get to to know know her um our our fourth guest is uh, dr chris shannon is associate professor in political theology and director of postgraduate teaching theology politics poverty race diversity and activism at the center for trust peace and social relations coventry university um We don't know each other that well, but we do have mutual friends. And if someone had told me at school that I could have got a job with that title, I probably would have worked harder because it's got all the things that I love, activism, race, politics, theology. So it's really great to have you on the panel as well. Um, Welcome. Thanks very much, Ben. Thank you. And last but not least, uh, we are joined uh, by the Reverend Rob Wickham, who became Bishop of Edmonton in September 2015? He is responsible for four North London boroughs, which include Barnet, Camden, Enfield, and Haringey. Bishop Rob is also lead bishop for Alma, the Church of England's partnership with the Anglican Church in Angola and Mozambique. And um, again, uh, Bishop Rob and I have got to know each other over the last couple of years. Um, He is also one of the leads around youth violence for the Church of England. Um, And we've done a lot of work together around power to fight and hopefully continue to do some great work. His heart for young people and this particular issue is is massive. So thank you so much also, Rob, for joining us. Thanks, Ben, it's a pleasure. Really appreciate it. So today, um, let's just, I just want to set the background very quickly and then we're going to get into some questions. Um, So it's really interesting that, um, it's only up until this afternoon that the government report, which was promised to come out around the disparities in the risk and outcomes of COVID nineteen report, only came out this afternoon. Yesterday it was delayed, and why that is interesting is because before that report, I was asked to write an article for Premier uh, Magazine, a blog, and um, I had already started just picking up through, mainly as a pastor, but also um, just through friends and family, that actually something was very strange about this disease, which seemed to be disproportionately impacting black and brown people. And, and, and this was just my, um, it's just my observation. This was just my observations. But it was basically something which I was seeing. And then all this stuff started coming out. All this stuff started coming out um, uh, through the press and stuff started coming out um, around uh, the news and government, which was suggesting that actually what we were seeing is that ethnic minorities in inner city areas were being disproportionately represented in this disease, but also in the front line. So there were more Black, Asian, minority, ethnic people working in NHS, 20%, than there are in the general population of England and Wales, 14%. And 44% of all NHS medical staff being BAME. It is no surprise to them that 63% of all healthcare workers who have died from COVID are also BAME. So for me, I was, this is really what I was holding and other people were kind of holding on to. And then a report came out today which basically said that death rates for COVID-19 were higher for black and Asian ethnic groups than compared to white ethnic groups. So we had this, uh, we've now got this report that backs this up. When um, I started talking around this issue to Robert, I realised that Robert had done this documentary very much looking at the black majority church's response to this issue. And uh, it's a great documentary. We'll put it in the chat if you have not seen it. Um, and what we realised very quickly was that actually the black majority churches had something to say about this. But what we, what we weren't really hearing was about the white majority churches. So one of the things that I wanna start off with um, is I wanna just ask Robert, if you can jump in and just first of all, just summarize your documentary. Um, and I suppose the first question I wanna kick off with is what is the biblical basis for us to be fighting racial injustice and how should the church respond? Because we, we, are, we are really talking about a disproportionate amount of black and brown people being impacted by this. And would it be fair to say that it feels like some parts of the church body have been a bit more silent than this? Maybe the black majority churches. So please summarize your documentary. And then just give us your thoughts on that. Just to sure, sure.
1: I'm going to be as brief as I possibly can. But thanks again for inviting me on this panel. And um, greetings again to all the panellists and greetings to everybody who's um, signed up and is uh, listening at this point in time. Just one slight correction. I now work at the Queen's Ecumenical Foundation. Um, I need to update my um, web page and other things regarding that. Two things. Then. first thing is we wanted to make a documentary that looked at black church primarily black pentecostal responses to the pandemic and the future of christianity and three things came out of this one that black churches at this point in time are not fit for purpose what we mean by that is they're not fit for doing social justice work in the community the second thing we realized is that um, black churches need to do much more in terms of educating clergy so that clergy can more actively engage with the text, with scripture, with life, and uh, do the kind of work that's necessary to address the social inequalities. And the third thing that we realise is people in the pews actually want this. The so people in congregations who are crying out for church leaders to be actively vocal and engaged in providing the tools and the vision for social transformations. That's the documentary. In terms of the biblical text, the way that I want to um, throw this out to all of our participants and my fellow panelists is to think about it this way. Firstly, scripture is contested. What Bible has to say about racial justice in our history in Britain has been contested. People have debated whether the Bible is actually committed to racial justice or working loosely towards supporting racial hierarchy. So let me just throw out two sets of texts that work in this debate. On the one hand, they're what we can call texts of terror. And these are the texts that have historically legitimated racism and racial hierarchy. Two in particular. The first one is from the Genesis story, Genesis 9.25, you note the Curse of Ham narrative. Noah gets drunk, has too many um, pilts, has a bit of wine, uh, uh, some cider, gets drunk, Uh, We're not sure exactly what happens in the text. His sons see him naked and he curses Canaan. Um, Doesn't curse Ham, curses Canaan. But that text has been historically used to legitimate black servitude. Only in 1929, for example, did the Southern Baptists say that that text was no longer important and they recognized they'd misread it. It lost currency in the 19th century within Britain, but even though it it has um, lost its Theological meaning; it's less social meaning. The idea that black people are somehow subservient still resonates with our culture. Second text of, of terror is the Ephesians text, Ephesians six five, which we know says, "Slaves, obey your masters." That text was used in colonial plantation society, colonial society to legitimate black subordination, had a prehistory in Europe, used to subordinate minorities um, of, of working class people, serfs within Europe, was then used in the Caribbean context to legitimate black servitude again. So those are two texts of terror, you know, and they still have resonance with us today. So how did enslaved people, African people, people of the African diaspora, black and brown people, how did they turn to scripture then to, to legitimate their their freedom, their sense of equality. Two texts in particular that are important in two biblical stories. First one is the Exodus narrative. The Exodus narrative, particularly Exodus 3, where God hears the cries of the people who are suffering social, economic, political bondage and liberates them. He says he's going to send somebody to free them. The Moses story comes into effect and Moses liberates. And that text is important for anti-racism because it tells us two things. That God is a God who is deeply concerned about oppression, Especially oppression where people are oppressed because of their ethnic identity or racialized identities. And secondly, that God is a liberator. And that's part of the Christian tradition. God is not blind to this, God is not indifferent, God is a liberator. And that text is a powerful resonance in anti racism struggles in the African, African Caribbean diaspora. The other text, again, which is well known, comes from the New Testament. Jesus begins his ministry in Luke 4 18. Borrowing from Isaiah, borrowing from the Jubilee tradition, it's the Spirit of the Lord is upon me text. And up as part of that introduction to Jesus' ministry, Jesus reintroduces the idea of of liberation, of setting the captives free. And that text within African history, Caribbean history, African American history, it's a powerful resonance with anti-racist struggles because, again, it reaffirms the idea that God in Christ is concerned with liberating people, freeing them from all kinds of bondage. Now, the reason why I throw those two texts in and place them within a, a broader context is because we can't see this issue of, Covid or the current issues around racial injustice outside of their connection to history, their connection to issues around gender, their, question, their connection to issues around class, they're all deeply interconnected. So the quest for liberation and uh, racism being part of that that struggle has been read through those those, those texts as part of a, a complex history of of interlocking or intersecting issues that we have to address when we address racism. So texts of terror and texts of liberation are, are part of our history, and we're still in some ways dealing with both of them.
0: That's so helpful. Oh, I've lost you a little bit, Robert.
1: Okay, that's it. That's yeah. my introduction.
0: That's your introduction, okay. Um, and then basically just on, the next part of that question, which we're saying, okay, um, should the church, I mean, you've, you've amazingly as you, as you would, you've basically looked at the reasons why we, we've got this conflict. Talk to me about the church response though, because there is still a debate though, isn't there, about whether church should engage with racial, ju- racial injustice.
1: Yeah, I think there are three things at play here. Firstly, historically, we haven't trained clergy or black or white clergy to address issues of rest. It just is missing from seminary uh, 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 courses. It's missing in terms of theological education. So consequently, most of the clergy, with few exceptions, uh, people have maybe been to, Chris went to Queen's College back in the day where these issues have been taught, but with few exceptions, clergy do not spend time reflecting on how to address race, racism, whiteness, as part of the biblical tradition, as part of their theologizing, and therefore as part of their mission. In church history, 1485 to uh, uh, 1834, uh, 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 38, when slavery was born, that's missing from the curriculum in Christian right. history. So you can, yeah. you're you more likely to know about the history of slavery and the church's involvement if you're a historian or even a geographer or <laughs> a theologian. So that's, that's the first. So I'm not knocking geographers, it's a beautiful discipline. Um, I'm not having a go at you, know, I'm just using it to compare. So that's the first problem. We've got a problem in terms of how we educate clergy. Secondly, and I'll just end on this, is that there's a problem with the politics of silence. Because people then don't feel that they've been adequately trained, don't actually understand the issues, they feel more comfortable being silent rather than, than speaking out because there's a fear of getting it wrong. And that's part of the training that needs to take place, how to actively involve. The problem, as you know, Ben, is that in black communities, silence equates to complicity. If you're not speaking out, then you're part of the problem. So I think there are those two issues that have been a problem in mainstream churches, lack of education, and also the inability to speak out as a consequence of that.
0: So helpful, so helpful. And I think there's so much I wanna come back to um, when you're talking about complicity, when you're talking about um, just, Uh, I suppose the cultural competency of anyone who's been trained to engage with this issue, um, I've definitely seen it and I've had these conversations in a school context where a lot of people would, uh, you know, there's a teach first model where people from outside of inner city context will come in and uh, will really struggle in the inner cities because they don't understand the cultural context of what is going on in that community and they've struggled so that's a really really helpful point i'm going to come on to elizabeth and what i would just say very quickly is that um if you've got questions please put them into uh the chat i think if i've got the technicals right we we should be live on on facebook so if anybody is have got friends and they're looking for stuff and they're like where is everybody Um, I I think I've just about got this live on Facebook now, so um, hopefully this is something which, you can go to the Power to Fight page on Facebook and it should be, it should be streaming I'm going to just hit go live now and hopefully it should be streaming on there any moment so um, tell your friends that that is where we're going to be going in in a moment right, I want to come on to Elizabeth Um, and, and Elizabeth obviously you've got a lot of history in in the church of church of england um and one of the questions i want to come to you about is like just bringing the focus back to white majority white led churches in your role as a national or in your previous role as the national advisor for minority ethnic anglican concerns um how have you seen the church whether that's the church of england or wider than the uk church respond in the last 20 to 30 years to racial injustice? Um, and what have we learned? And I think this is important because, as we said at the very start, what we are seeing is something which is shifting. So one of the things that we, we need to look at, is there any best practice? Or are we nowhere near where we need to be? So Elizabeth, just your thoughts on that would be really helpful.
2: Yeah, hi everyone. And uh, great that everybody's uh, online and people are online. Welcome and thanks for joining us for this. Um, I guess I, Ben, I think for me, I've I've thought about this and and what I wanted to share this evening, in the backdrop of George Floyd and Amy Cooper. Yes. So I don't think we should forget that because the you know George Floyd's life was brutally taken by a racist cop. Amy yeah. Cooper based on very very similar notions and the notions that I talk about, I think Robert referred to as whiteness and, and or if I I refer from your book and also the way that I tend to frame it, white supremacy, was two of the same things. Because Amy Cooper clearly felt and knew that her whiteness was, was her ticket, just as George Floyd's blackness was his ticket. So for me, I thought about this as history is today. So what I mean by that is, you asked about the last 30, 35 years um, within the white majority churches. So I, I can't obviously speak for all, for all churches and all white majority churches or others, but what I can talk about in response to your question, of course, is in my role at the Church of England. Sure. And what I felt there. Okay, so I framed this in this. There is something deeply perverse about expecting those who are oppressed and excluded to be the architects of eliminating that oppression and exclusion.
0: Wow. Well, hold on. We, well, we, need, we, need, we, we, we need to reload been. on that. Please say that again, because that is a very, very powerful statement. Please say that again. Please say that again.
2: There is something deeply perverse in expecting those who are oppressed and or excluded to be architects of eliminating that oppression and or exclusion.
0: Yeah.
2: And so... I feel that, and I know that from my experience, we talk about, not about us without us. And I think that that is absolutely correct. I don't think that we should, that white majority churches and or other society generally should be making plans or deciding what should happen about us without us. But I still go back to the perversity And that has been, sadly, the case in the Church of England. And it's been the case in the sense of, let's go back 35 years, shall we? And let's go back to, I'm sure most people on this line, and I certainly know the panelists will know, faith in the city. Faith in the city was lauded as a watershed. It was received with great joy in that there it is in black and white, laid out before us, what needs to be done in order to be inclusive, and not just inclusive, because inclusive isn't enough, is it? Inclusive is, yes, having that place at the table, it's not having the voice, belonging. And faith in the city, has been really used and again and again and again, and many of us, including myself, by the way, refer to it. And it's certainly referred to in the church. But I think what we would have to examine is what has happened as a result of faith in the city? What has changed? What has progressed? What has improved? And sadly, I go back to where i started with george floyd and amy cooper yes that's not the church but it is society and the church is a microcosm of society and so you asked about racial justice justice is a key mark of mission justice is a key mark of what we as christians need not only to be leaving but need to be seeking it isn't a choice it isn't a well if it suits us we will do it it isn't a well this is very difficult because i don't really understand it it isn't a well we do welcome people we always say hello when people walk in that's not that's not justice Sure. And so um, you ask again, what has, what has the church done? What I can tell you is this, though. the church has roundabout, and I'm talking about the Church of England here,
0: right.
2: has around about 33,000 social action projects in this country. I'm talking about total, so, so they're not divided by ethnicity and who is served by those programmes. The Church of England has 16,000 parish churches. It has a presence in every community in that in that sense and it is the established church and as such it has voice it has presence it has convening power it has influence power and the questions have to be how will the church and how does the church and how will the church because i think we have to talk about going forward how will the church use those powers in order to stand up for justice in order to say that racial injustice is not only wrong, there is actually a directive in the Church of England for clergy people, and it's called Affirming Our Common Humanity. And it talks about the sin of racism and why racism is wrong and what our responses to it should be. I don't know how many people know about that and I don't know how many clergy are informed of that. But as, Ro- as Robert says, when, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna go very quickly to, I've changed a little bit now from, uh, from, I'm just gonna go very quickly to what Robert spoke about in the black majority churches, these three points. Um, Rod, Robert talked about um, the not fit for purpose. The same with social action in the community. And he also said members and congregants long to hear about these issues from their church. That's absolutely no different in the white majority church. The white majority church is not fit for purpose in relation to tackling, addressing, speaking to and and being a serious part of the elimination of racism in society. Why? Because, the, because, not only because it's the church and it's the established church, but sadly, the established church is part of the problem. And it has to see itself as part of the problem in order to therefore acknowledge and then having acknowledged to reconciliate and having reconciliated move to, repa- move to repair. Wow. Problem with how we educate clergy. There is deep problems in theological colleges, just as there are in our schools across this country. And the deep problems in that, our clergy are not educated on a world-centric theology. They are educated on a Western-centric theology. That is an injustice to both UK minority ethnic people, and it's a deeper injustice to UK majority ethnic people because they are less likely to seek out world-centric theology. And then what, what Robert said finally was about the silence and the fear of getting it wrong. I genuinely, genuinely believe, and I can say that I recently had a conversation with the Archbishop of Canterbury about this, and I have to agree with, with Robert on that. Because we talked about the silence because of the fear of getting it wrong. But I will say this about that silence that silence forms a very useful comfort blanket. The comfort blanket of, well, I'm not going to say anything because I might get it wrong. And if I get it wrong, well, you know, um, I don't know how I would manage or how I would live it down. There's no time for thinking about getting it wrong. And staying silent, silence is acquiescence at best and collusion at worst. Regardless of the background of fear to that, as I said, that fear is a comfort blanket. I'm going to stop there for now because there's so much more. But I, you know, I think you know me already, Ben, and <laughs> I will go well, on. I, so I, I'm going I, to stop. We could,
0: have, we could have just had a, a a podcast with just me and you, and. Um, So there's just a couple of points I want to pick up on there. So I think, thank you, as always, uh, some very, very real statements. I think one of the things you mentioned is when I often talk to white people about race, um, not just in a church context, but across the board, um, there is that fear of what you've just said. There is a fear of what if I say the wrong thing? Um, What... If I get it wrong, and there there is something genuine there, and I, I i I think you're right to point out that actually, if we want to go as serious as you know a police officer is now kneeling for eight minutes on a person's neck, or we are seeing world leaders claiming to be Christians and doing things which don't necessarily reflect the Bible. I'm with you in the context of listen we, we've got to call this out because as I always as I always say I don't want to be sitting next to my white brother or sister in in a church context and obviously with covid that's not happening anytime soon anyway but in in post covid I don't, don't want to be sitting next to my white brother and sister in Christ and wondering uh, what's your thoughts on that latest racial injustice which we've all seen across So I think you've raised a good point. But I also, one thing I want to return to, and we'll open this question up a little bit later, is, well, how do we build confidence in our white brothers and sisters in the body to actually really step out and step up? Because if this week has shown me anything, when people want to say something, they, they can. Something's happened where white people I didn't even know had black friends are suddenly saying stuff about racism so something can happen so i'm gonna we'll come back to that and um I'm, there's loads of questions coming through but i just want to give the panelists and we're going until nine o'clock so we've got plenty of time i was want to give the panelists a little bit of time just to express their parts um and their specific uh, background and where they're coming from i want to come on to tris um and like Chris, you're very interested in the, in the sense that you are working, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're working on a research projects, Life on the Breadline," this is what it's called, Christianity, Poverty and Politics in the 21st Century City. Um, it says that it's a new three-year economic and social research, council-funded research project, exploring Christian engagement with poverty and equality in the UK during the age of austerity so i mean that's a that's a that's a lot um so i suppose first and foremost and the reason there's there's some words i want to pick out here so you've, you've got inequality in there and you've got poverty um and you've got austerity all things which we could argue um are part of the reason and issue we're in at the moment so what would be really helpful if you could just explain a little bit about your research um and then in that context just what has been and what can be and what should be the white-led white majority church engagement in the area of racial injustice.
3: Thanks very much Ben and um, thanks for the invitation to be part of the conversation and good evening everyone. Um, I want to say three, three things. Firstly I want to say something about why I believe this moment matters to white-led churches. Secondly, as you say, I want to see if we can draw some lessons from the research project that Robert and our friend Peter Scott from Manchester and my colleague Stephanie Denning from the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations are are working on life on the red line. And then thirdly, I want briefly to just to throw out some reflections, potentially challenges to the white-led church, almost as kind of almost as bullet points if that's okay. So the first thing I wanted to start with is why this moment matters Um, the coronavirus pandemic represents a tragedy I would say not of historical proportions but it also represents a perfect storm for those with power and for white-led churches I would argue this is an apocalyptic event and a kairos moment now, those are big, fancy words, so let me explain what I mean very briefly. Yeah, please, 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 do, is, please do, I believe that this is an apocalyptic event, COVID-19, because the coronavirus pandemic has revealed the unholy trinity that many of us knew was there but was living in the shadows. What I'm talking about is the relationship between racism, austerity, inequality, and COVID-19. Racism, poverty, and COVID-19. I think what we've seen is that the pandemic um, has revealed that unholy trinity, so it's now on show for all to see. This is a Kairos moment, I think, as well, for the white-led church, because the pandemic is a moment of judgment, but also of opportunity for the white. Led church and so the question is what as white-led churches are we going to do about it how are we going to respond um, as you said my, my work as a researcher and my faith as a Christian revolves very much around a commitment to engaging with poverty racism and activism and that revolves around the Project Life on the breadline um, Since 2018, that has provided the focus for, for my work. Um, supported, as you say, by the ESRC, we've been developing a number of case studies in London, Birmingham, and Manchester, surveying church leaders, interviewing church leaders, to try and get at, the ways in which churches are responding to growing inequality, growing poverty that we've seen during the age of austerity. Uh, we could talk for longer about that but just briefly some of some of the lessons that I think might, I would suggest kind of very tentatively help us to understand some of the reasons why Black and Asian Britons Have been hardest hit by COVID 19. The first thing I would say is that, in spite of what we were told 10 years ago, austerity is not some aimless, inevitable, neutral force of nature. We were told there is no alternative, and that's clearly not the case. The second thing I would say. is that in spite of what the former conservative prime minister David Cameron and his chancellor George Osborne suggested, we are very clearly not all in this together. The age of austerity and the inequality that it gave rise to hit black and minority ethnic communities far harder than white communities. I think the jury is no longer out on that. The stats, the studies, the research demonstrates again and again and again that black and minority ethnic communities have been hardest hit by austerity policies and the last ten years, the so-called age of austerity. Structural inequality in the UK, combined with institutional racism, has ensured, I would say, argue and certainly something we're learning in life on the red line, that black and minority ethnic Britons are harder hit than their white sisters and brothers. So as class and ethnicity have combined, working class, black and Asian Britons have been feeling the brunt of the age of austerity. Thirdly, and finally, before moving on to some challenges that i think covid-19 raises for the white led church in terms of the impact this has had on black and minority ethnic communities life on the breadline has demonstrated that as the state has withdrawn christian communities and christian ngos have remained are in the vanguard have been in the vanguard of the struggle to defeat poverty for the last 10 years because of the roots the churches have in local communities. The question and the challenges in relation to inequality, in relation to structural violence, direct violence, cultural violence and racism, what do white-led churches do with that presence and that power? I think that white-led churches need to respond to five or six challenges finally, if we're going to answer that question. First, white-led churches need to wake up To the enduring realities of white privilege. Now that's not to say that all white people in the UK are wealthy and powerful. That would be unreasonable and inaccurate to claim that, because we all know on the panel that there are significant levels of social exclusion amongst many white working-class communities. But white privilege nevertheless, the church needs to wake up to that. Number two, the church needs to repent of its ongoing collusion with systems of inequality and with institutional racism number three having woken up and repented the church needs to be converted to an explicit and unequivocal commitment to the mission that jesus outlines in luke 4 and preach good news not just to the poor but to all who are oppressed fourth The church needs to be unafraid as it becomes a prophetic movement speaking truth to power again. Fifth, the church must do more than talking the talk. White-led churches are very good at talking. We need to walk the walk as well and put our money where our mouth is. That means embodying God's preferential option to the oppressed in policies and practices and not just in the pulpit. Wow. Austerity and racism collide, I would suggest, in COVID-19. This is a Kairos moment for the white-led churches. So the question I want to throw out is, how will we respond? I think there are lessons we can learn from our life on the Red Line Project about the intersection between class, poverty, inequality, and racism. But the challenge is, before the white-led church now,
0: how will the church respond? Only time will tell. Oh, that's, I mean, that's so helpful, so 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 very helpful and very um, uh, close. Something close to my heart. Um, I think you said some things there which are quite hard hitting. But I think when you look at the evidence, I would say that you're you're right. I think somebody's put in the comments: um, white-led churches are good at talking. Um, and I think it's really interesting what we will see or what I've seen over the last week and a half. It feels like there's a real frustration actually with black and brown people in specifically white led churches maybe bigger movements bigger churches with that frustration of that is you talk the talk but when it's now time when I'm grieving, when I'm in pain when my when your black and brown congregation members are in pain and grieving, what you, your your response isn't isn't connecting. Your response is, is missing the mark, <clears> whether <throat> that is sermons or, or preachers or something around what you're putting your social time, social action into. I, I talk about in in my own book that we are that white majority churches are very good at the obvious stuff, the, the food banks. And I think it was I think it was Robert. In, in one of his books or one of the articles, and I quote it in the book, where he talks there's a difference between social justice and social welfare.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We're we are good. Those type of churches are very good at social welfare. Someone needs to be fed, feed them food bank. And that's biblical. You know, if we look at Jesus and we look at when people are hungry, he he acted very quickly. But then there's this other side of it, this social justice side of stuff, which it feels like some most churches are very uh, resident to 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 jump into. They they don't want to challenge the status quo. Um, and I know there is a there's a fine line between the, the church's responsibility. Are we talking about church and state and church that have the power of the of, of the of of government? I don't think anyone's saying that. Well, at least I'm not. But there does seem to be a lack of social justice um, and or an impact on social justice. And I think that is something we should we because now we found out it feels like we've been exposed. The social justice issue around race—we don't quite know what to do. Mm-hmm. White majority of churches don't know what to do. Uh, most churches don't know what to do. So that's a very helpful. I want to come back to some stuff, but I want to also bring in Sharon. Um, you've been, you, you, and Rob have been very patient, uh, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, you've just heard some stuff. You've heard from Robert. You've, <laughs> you've heard from Dr. Elizabeth. You'd, you've heard from. Dr. Chris, um sorry, I should say Professor Robert. Let me give you the right title, Robert. I apologize. Um if I had a professor in front of my name, i am be making sure everybody be using it. So I, I apologize there. So you've heard from you've heard from these guys, and I suppose I'll be interested in just your thoughts, but can there, should there be a white-led response to racial injustice? Or or are we expecting too much of our white brothers and sisters? Um, Should it be actually ethnic minority led, Um, especially in relation to what we're dealing with with COVID-19, but also the inequalities that we're seeing around the world, particularly with the racial um, injustice in the US, which we must also say is not just limited to the us we have seen multiple cases in the uk as well so should it be should we is it is it too much expectation for white led churches white majority churches to step into this arena or should we be empowered as the minority to to lead on this
4: well thank you and thank you for inviting me to be a part of this dialogue this conversation which i think is long overdue and um i'm you know i'm of the age now where i've heard this rhetoric for years and it saddens me but also i have a a sense of hope that like you things are shifting um and um you know when i'm thinking about the next generation and our grandchildren i think it's important for us to hold on to that sense of hope I want to speak from my experience of working in Birmingham amongst the churches and the Church of England Birmingham, but also my experience of working across several dioceses in the Church of England. Um, I don't have easy solutions and I think that is the nooks of the problem, that actually it's not a white majority or black majority. We've already heard from our previous speakers about the paralysis that people often enter into in white majority churches because of the fear of getting things wrong, and also the, the sort of um, the lack of of understanding that can arise from black majority churches because of this quite rightly the need to protect, to affirm, and encourage their own congregants as well, not just that, but for other reasons. And what we are trying to do in Birmingham is to look at not just a monocultural church or a homogenous church made up of one group of people, but we're trying to talk about intercultural church, church that is similar to the church from the first century, the early church. And now I'm not going to say that that's perfect But, you know, that's the definition of the original messy church. This thing takes work. This thing about what it means to live life together, to affirm and encourage each other, takes work. And and I believe, passionately, it starts with the church on its knees, humbly before God lamenting our own delusion and i'm when i'm saying we and i am talking ostensibly about white majority churches established churches such as the one that i belong to lamenting our own delusion and blindness if i can use that term to the not only the disparities but the pain that is in our midst we have to look at that we have to be able to talk into it, and more importantly, listen deeply to those who are being treated unjustly and those who experience the day-to-day pain of systemic violence. Over the last 11 weeks, I have been moved to tears and broken with a number of people that have been grieving loved ones that are worried about the economic ramifications of this, not just through the lockdown, but going forward for years, Mm -hmm. who are worried about their mental health, who are seeing themselves in a context of this disease is not just about genetics, but because I have... Uh, I am open to all the unjust systems that allows me to be at a disadvantage. And so where are the places of grace where people can talk about this, where we can weep together, lament together, and, and actually start to work out what does it mean going forward? Mm. What's been so amazing are the number of webinars um, and Talks that are are around this subject, and and this is one of them, and I've been greatly encouraged by that. But I was listening to one last week with um the Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas, who's the Dean of Union Theological Seminary, and she said something really powerful. She said the church required two things. First of all, it needed to tell the repentant truth, it needed to face the reality of what it had perpetrated and colluded in to say sorry. And secondly, secondly, she said there needs to be a restorative letting go. And what she meant by that was letting go of the sense of entitlement, letting go of privilege, adopting that, what it means to be a servant. We talk about embodying, incarnating, living out our spirituality, and that's what it means to let go of our power to adopt the position that jesus took when he became incarnate and we seem to have lost the power of that and i'd like to add my own final suggestions to that um that actually what we need is to reimagine the kingdom and what that means one of the verses that's always resonated with me are not the verses of terror that um, that Robert spoke about? Those were rejected by me and the people that I grew up with years and years ago. And and Robert and I know that you know that we have had to sort of mediate some of that false narrative. But you know the, the idea that the kingdom of heaven is every tribe and tongue praising God. So yeah. I want to say where where. Where, how are we enacting the every tribe and tongue? How are we enacting the, the first church with people from Niger and um, the sort of Africa, African regions? Where is that? Manaean and, you know, all these people that were in the church and Nympha in Colossians. Where is that happening? Why have we forgotten? Why are we not embodying that? i want to say that unity is powerful and it requires an approach that lets go of power we need to intentionally move towards a way that we talk about our congregations and our leadership and we question the representation that that holds i have a daughter and she does she is a young woman who when she walks into a church and she doesn't see anybody that looks like her she questions whether that church is living out its mission and gospel and i can't say anything against that because fundamentally her questioning has a resonance because we don't just speak it we live it out we practice it we missionally embody what it means to be the people of god and that always strikes me for the second and third generation, this cannot go on any longer. My telephone was hot today with brothers and sisters from right across the churches saying, how can we stand together in solidarity? What does it mean? And um, One of the things I say is do not look for assuaging your guilt by putting the burden on people of color. Instead, if it is about fighting and dismantling unjust structures and systems, we have to dialogue about how do we do this together? What does it mean to go forward together? What are the things, you know, the log in your own eye before you look outwards? You know, this idea of self-reflection that we need to practice before we go forward. And I just want to say one final thing. Reconciliation is not passive. Reconciliation is active. It is about social justice. And one of the the scriptures that I've been meditating on over the last 10, 11 weeks is the scripture, is actually the book of Nehemiah. And as you all know, the story of Nehemiah exiled going to king um the king Axeterces, i think it was coming back to build to rebuild the walls of jerusalem to rebuild the walls that had been broken down during the exile period and they met adversaries but in one hand they had the sword and in the other hand they had their utensils for building up the walls and that's what we have to do. We have to fight. We have to advocate. And I mean fighting not in a, in a violent de- definition, but we have to be prepared to stand up and put our heads above the parapet and say, this is not of God. This is not justice. This is not right. If we are to be yeah. the people of God. And then we have that's to helpful. build up our churches to be the places of grace. And forgiveness yes. that God is calling us to be. So I think uh, so,
0: I'm... <laughs> no, no, it's so profound. And I think what you've articulated is the heart of many, many people. Uh, similar to you, I've had phone calls. My phone has not stopped ringing in the last week. No. You know, yeah. <laughs> I've got. Yeah. I've got I, I do have a full time job, but <laughs> it's like you know, it just hasn't stopped. And and it's white and black. If be honest. My black Christian friends um, will say, "I'm tired. Mm. I'm 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 more tired than I've ever been." And there's this uh, there's this weird giddy excitement, not in a necessarily negative way, from a lot of my white Christian friends who have said, "No, but what can we do?" And it's this weird kind of scenario where I I, I get that and I respect that you're asking what we can do, what we should do. that also fuels the tiredness (laughs) and it's kind of like oh man yeah okay good I'm glad you're answering I'm glad you're engaging but also for the 95th time for the day I'm now I'm just shattered but at the same time I don't want to push you away from from having that having those having that dialogue like you say I'm going to say something which is before I bring Bishop Robin I think there's something I I, I'm going to say um and it's, it's it's strong but I think for me, this is what I believe God has been sharing with me over the last uh, couple of days. And most of the, everybody on this panel will remember what I'm about to say, but, you know, I appreciate there might be some younger watchers or listeners. But 1993 was a very significant year in race relations because a young man called Stephen Lawrence was murdered in Southeast London. And I think it was 1999 when the first report came out and it was... It shone, it exposed, It's shone a light on the institutional racism within the police. I honestly believe that this George Floyd situation combined with the disproportionality impacting uh, or the COVID-19 impacting disproportionately black and brown people is shining a similar light on the UK church. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that in a, in a, in a flippant way. But I honestly believe I've not seen the reactions I've seen from UK church leaders and UK church members in my lifetime. And some of you guys, although you look a lot younger than me or a bit older than me, so I'm sure maybe you might be able to tell me if something was different. But I definitely think there is something which is very strange. And therefore, if that is true, that we're about to go into a season where the the scrutiny on the UK church is as much as it was on the police force around the McPherson report, this is a really monumental moment. And it's a critical moment because if we don't get this right as a church, there is a real danger that we're gonna lose a whole generation. Because like you you expressed about your daughter, the questions are coming. I've seen it in my own congregation, I've seen it in multiple other congregations. Where is the church? And this is what I'm trying to express to people. Don't miss this moment. Mm -hmm. Don't miss this moment because Mm -hmm. there's something shifting. So I just want to throw that in there. We can come back to that. Um, I want to thank you very much, uh, Reverend uh, Sharon. I want to bring in Bishop Rob. You've been very, very patient. um, And I always feel underdress when I see you Church of England guys with the collar and you got a, a jack suit jacket on and you know you're, you're just you're just looking suave so thank uh, you very to be much. honest.
5: i got shorts and underneath
0: so I just. <laughs> oh, wow okay you've just destroyed everything that's cool that's fine but I, I think it's, it's so important to hear from you because you are uh, the only white clergy we have on on this panel which wasn't like a deliberate thing uh, about, you know, you're, you're somebody I would call a, a friend and therefore I really want to just ask you as a senior member of the, of the Church of England and a white man, I suppose what is the desire of the church, you can speak specifically about the Church of England because that's where you are, your base, to engage with this issue of racism. Uh, what is currently happening? And what are some of your personal and and corporate challenges when it comes to engaging with racial injustice?
5: Thanks, Ben. And can I just share, as other panellists have done, it's such a privilege to be here with everyone today. It really is. And I've... One of the great things about going last in terms of of your opening statements is that you can rewrite your talk as you're listening to other people. (laughs) 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 Um, I'm very grateful for your honesty and I'm also hugely grateful for the challenges which you've set. I I, I feel them very deeply. Um, Just three sections, uh, if I may. Can I just talk a bit about me? Is that all right? Uh, um, You can. can. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Dice of London, the context in which I'm in at the moment, and then. I'd like to share something um, about some insights around Pentecost, because for me, Pentecost is a critical key part of of our response to these issues. So, in terms of talking about me, if I if I if I if if I'm able, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when in prison, asks a big question of who am I? And -hmm. that's a question which I, I respond to rather a lot. And 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 so I have to be really honest as we begin or as we're part of this conversation today. I am a white, middle class privately educated clergy man in the church of england there are many others like me because we tend to get the, the positions of power in the church of england so i'm owning right from the outset that i am an example of white privilege as i grew up in suburban surrey i had very little experience of poverty and very little experience of people of colour. This lack of diversity, I am aware, has shaped my own personal unconscious bias, my unconscious thinking, and I own that. I have, however, been shaped by all sorts of different people in 23 years' worth of ministry. Faith in the City, as been shared already, was a really important moment in my very young Christian years of looking at the church's response to poverty. And through that experience, and through a time in Newcastle where I worked, where Swan Hunter Shipyard closed down while I was there serving that community, and at a time where some of the streets nearby had 80% male unemployment, that really was a conversion moment for me to work in the inner city to see the importance of Christian work in the inner city. And that led me to some of the poorest parts of London. I've worked in Wilsdon, I've worked in Summerstown, that part of Camden, and I've been the rector of Hackney. And each place, each set of relationships has taught me. And in these communities, I have been blessed and bruised in equal measure currently as bishop of edmonton as you've heard already about the 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 boroughs that i serve i also am the lead bishop for alma the partnership between london mozambique and angola and this link unequivocally reminds me that i am not the global majority that jesus is at work across the world and the reality is that the average anglican is black is a woman from sub-Saharan Africa, earning less than $4 a day. That it's a very different reality from the Church of England. But I'm also honest to say that each place where I worked, in the different churches where I've been, clergy and leadership teams were predominantly white. And I say all these things about me because I recognise that I'm part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So tonight it's a privilege to be here as a bishop because i also recognize as elizabeth was sharing earlier on that as a bishop i have leverage i have power to change a culture and i believe that we and i in the church in london must the inequalities are all too stark when i look at the posher parts of london the white majority actually parts of london where you've got no covid related deaths and Somers Town, where I was a parish priest. I think the last count was 17 COVID-related deaths in there of poverty. The figures show us so much. And so I'm here and I am listening, but I need to choose where I spend my time and who and what shapes me as a bishop. And how do I recognize and challenge white privilege? And through those things, I hope not just to be the problem, but also to use the influence that I have to be part of the solution. Now in the Diocese of London, we are 500 churches across 17 London boroughs. And we've recently discerned a vision to be a church for all Londoners because we recognise the body of Christ is for all Londoners. Now this is a challenge because we need to have a reality check. 1.7% 1.7% of the population in London attends an Anglican church in London, whilst 8% of people profess to be Christians. Most Christians are not in the Church of England in London. However, we believe it's right that we are all together can be God's mighty prayer for the world. And as such, that requires greater collaboration working for the common good across our communities. Therefore, a vision is telling, I think, the Church of England to listen, to challenge and change the nature of who makes up the us, who is the Diocese of London, and perhaps to be honest about who is othered in the Diocese of London. And there's a power dynamic that Sharon was reminding of us earlier on at play. And yes, there are strategies at place. We all love a good strategy in the Church of England. There's all sorts of thoughts which are going on, I'm aware, and plans that we've put in place across the diocese in all sorts of different ways. And I might have an opportunity later on, if you so wish, to go through what those look like. But I'm very aware that culture eats strategy for breakfast And therefore, the idea is that we try and change the culture that we need. And that culture change needs to be one which is intentional. Learning through COVID, listening to the cries of the poor, because we have a presence, of course, in those places. And I'm absolutely aware that when we follow frameworks around culture change, the sort of work that uh, John Cotter describes uh, and certainly I, I was uh, learning much more about him from someone called Georgina Graham that I worked with in the Diocese of London uh, just uh, yesterday. What does that framework, what does that culture change look like? And as we've been reminded, prayer is a key part of that because prayer leads to a change of heart. It comes to, leads us all, it seems to me, to a place of repentance and willingness to, as Henri Nouon reminds us, Give power away to make room for others. So, therefore, prayer should confront with truth to reconcile and not other the unknown. And that is what prayer is about, again, it seems to me. So, there's some work which is taking place across the Diocese of London to help us do that because the vision tells us we can't keep the way we are if we are to be truly a church for all Londoners. We are not currently a church for all Londoners. Friends, a couple of days ago, uh, as we all uh, did, we celebrated Pentecost. And Pentecost, for me, is a beautiful picture where Jesus breathes upon the apostles and they are filled. These apostles go on and speak, each in a different language. The message of Jesus Christ becomes global, outward-looking, sent out, filled with hope. The same Jesus, of course, that brings us, calls us to repentance and asks us in his forgiveness to do things differently, to build a different kingdom. The breath of Jesus is life-giving to the world. Yet I'm aware from the conversations that I have from this conversation tonight, that when we think of breath, many are tired and angry, especially at the systemic injustices. And the unnecessary and tragic death of George Floyd, and so many men and women like him, those who could not breathe, either physically because of a white cop's knee, or there are others who cannot breathe because of coronavirus, structural inequality, institutional racism, or political hypocrisy. And these must be named for what they are. And it is right, for bishops and others to name them for what they are. And Pentecost for me is the prophetic message message that drives us because it is an image of inclusion, of humility and of powerlessness. This is a moment of liberation where God's gifts are given freely to all, bringing to light the messiness and complications of our lives and enabling us to be better citizens of God's kingdom. Pentecost impacts also how we choose to live, the decisions we make. And of course, I'm aware that through COVID-19, we've all seen some extraordinary moments where Christians have worked together in their communities to support brothers and sisters in times of need, particularly in our poorest of communities. I don't want to rest at that because this is not enough, although I rejoice in this because together we must name the underlying reasons as to why such projects are needed in the first place. Given that COVID-19 has been proven to hit the poorest and people of colour the hardest. This is a justice issue. This matters to God as all life, black life matters to God. I don't think the answer will just come from a focus in the Church of England upon church growth. And I'm conscious that the feeling focusing only on church growth comes from a place of fear, of losing influence from deep within. But I do believe this sense of it does come from our focus upon justice, that mark of mission, which drives us not to action in the first instance, but to listen. I'm really proud to be part of a church which has a presence in every community. But I don't believe as a church we are good at letting the poor be our teachers. A lot of our communities are ones which are done too and I pray that we become communities where we work alongside each other, listening deeply to each other as we shape policy, as we shape focus and as we shape vision for our churches. And it's in that sense of listening, the sort of contextual safeguarding that Ben speaks so profoundly and powerfully about which is a key aspect to our ongoing mission and development, if we are truly to remain as a church for all Londoners, in my instance, but I'm conscious that this is right across the globe. My dear friends, I'm grateful to be here. I've been quite nervous about being here. I'm grateful to be here, and I'm here to learn to be shaped by this conversation. And I pray that through this conversation, we are prophetic. Let's together dis- discover something of God's truth. Because, my friends, we are all equally made in the image of God. Together we are God's. We are Pentecost. We are an image of Pentecost. And I pray, as we've already seen, my prayers are being answered, that God speaks through us tonight.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Bishop Robert. Uh, it's very profound. Um, it's an absolute privilege just to hear all of you and your, and your, and your views on this. But yeah, that was amazing and um, really helpful to understand your heart, hear your heart. Um, also just the honesty and the acknowledgement that uh, there's a lot to learn. Um, so I really do appreciate that. And my experience would be that many of, of well, I, I'm going to say, shall I say this? Yeah, I will say it anyway i started, so I will continue now. Um, I think my experience with uh, white leadership and definitely my experience with the police would be, in some cases, the higher I go, it's, the, it's those white people at the, at the top who tend to get this, who tend to have a desire to change. Some of the more senior police officers I know, and very similar, it is... Um, people like yourself and, and others I can mention who are bishops who I speak to and they tend to get it and have the heart. But similar to the police and similar to clergy who are, it's the middle management <laughs> and those on the ground where something sometimes we miss it. We miss that same level of desire and passion for racial unity. And I think that's something which I would say we need to, we need to work on. And I think it was said at the very start what is our training? Um, Theological College is very interesting um, in terms of what we're studying, who we're studying, Um, and I'm sure all of you can testify that we're not really stepping outside of the West, the traditional Western world of our theologians who we're studying and I think that is part of the problem. Um, And I think we've also got this problem about not being prepared to have these safe spaces and having multiple black and brown narratives, and also contradicting black and brown narratives. So my story would be very different to Sharon's, or Sharon's story maybe will be very different to Elizabeth and to Robert's and so on, but we we like to box, and and I think it's a very helpful conversation. So thank you so much. Um, For all your opening statements, it's been amazing. So what we've now, we're doing very well for time. My biggest concern is that we've all got people who know how to speak and speak well, and in some cases, lead churches and stuff. So I was always like, oh my goodness, we're, we're not gonna get through this, but we've actually got half an hour, which is great. So what I wanna do, and I've, and I've seen, like Robert has been very proactive, and he's been answering a lot of questions as we've been going ahead, which is brilliant. Uh, we're not getting paid any more money, Robert, for that, but I, I, I thank you so much for, for, for that. <laughs> um, and um, And it's really good. So I'm just gonna try and go through some of these questions and, We've got a bit of time, you know, I, what I want to do, we'll probably spend, it's, it's half past now, um, I want to give us maybe 15 minutes on this. Um, so I'll try and pick out some, some good ones and then I would like you guys just to have a bit of a closing statement after after the stuff which you've heard. Um, so get those pens ready. So let's have a look at some of these questions. Um, so we've got one from Wayne Simmons here. But when you are in a black church with all black members, I would argue that racial issues would be very remote from its mission. Um, it's more of a a statement, I suppose. Um, but when you're on a black church with all black members, I would argue that racial issues would be very remote from its mission. Robert, would you like to jump in on that one? Any 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 thoughts on, on that statement?
1: Yeah, just quickly to say that that's not the case because COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted black Absolutely. communities. Black churches have been addressing this issue and have had to come to terms with the same questions around racial injustice, whether it be in the health service or whether it be um, social factors. So all of these things do impact on black churches as well.
0: Really helpful. Thank you very much. I'm just scrolling through. And if you've got questions, guys, um, this is the time to put them in. Uh, Let's keep going. Uh, Just lots of people agreeing, which is really good. Just like, you know, excellent. Okay, we've got one from Claire here. There may be some white people who fear hurting others but I do wonder if the fear of speaking up is more about the fear of being stained with racism. We'd ra- would we'd rather someone else, typically a more marginalised person, with the, was the bad person? Wow, repentance, by the way, uh, I say this as a white straight woman. So, that is a, that's, an, that's, that's a, a great observation. Anybody wanna jump in and just comment on that one? Very quickly. You
2: just repeat um, that again.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Claire was just saying that there may be some white people who fear hurting others, but I do wonder if the fear of speaking up is more about the fear of being stained with racism. So it actually speaks into your point, Elizabeth, earlier on about um, do we need to get beyond the the fear element of speaking up about in, in injustice? Um, yeah, you said I
2: suppose
0: she yeah. she's,
2: she's just come she's just come back and put, and 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 um i couldn't agree more i mean i think that all of the u k minority ethnic people who are listening in and who are here will recognize those who work in white, who have worked or who, well, all of us have operated in white dominated spaces, regardless of whether we work in them or not. We live in a, we, that's the world that we live in. Um, and, and actually in those spaces, I was saying this to a colleague, a, a very senior colleague just a few weeks ago, trying to explain to him um, about his white fragility and about how that operates. And I gave him this example of, do you ever go to a meeting where you are the minority at that table as a white middle-class male and as that minority you are expected and asked to speak for all minorities because there is only one community of minorities, i.e. the black community, the Asian community, whatever Uh, You know the traveler community the Roma community. Are you ever asked to speak for that whole community? And in doing so knowing that your peers around that table Are feeling very uncomfortable with what you're saying and so what you do is You spend an awful lot of time Phrasing And framing what you say in order not to disturb, upset, make them uncomfortable. Or or in other words, to protect their white fragility. And we all know this. We talked about code switching before uh, we actually went live. And we do a lot of code switching. I'm not saying this in, in an accusatory fashion. I'm saying this in this is the reality of how we live and when you work in, a, when you work you operate in those white dominated spaces and i think claire is absolutely right it's it is that fragility we all know when those uncomfortable conversations get started and what then happens is often uh, white people feel the need to defend what they have just said or to defend the position that they are in and then we spend a lot of time trying to assuage that defense in order that we could level that and frame it and get to the point where we can talk in an open way and maybe make yep. some headway through that talk. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the, the, the yeah. It, it, I don't know why. I, I can't answer why. I'm not going to answer why a white person... Um, would act in would act in the way they act because i don't think that that is my place to say why would they act in that way but i certainly i certainly know and understand white fragility and i seriously doubt that um other other people both on this call and generally don't under uh, are, are not understanding of that yeah
0: That's that's really helpful. I'm going to bring, yeah, Reverend Dr. Sharon, please come in.
2: Hi,
4: thank you. Um, Yeah, I I agree with uh, what Elizabeth had to say, but I think the premise is about what are our churches supposed to be? Are they not supposed to be places of grace, places where we can discuss honestly? and, And if they're not, we have to question why not. And what comes to mind is the, the whole sort of Indaba process in South Africa, which wasn't done um, just post apartheid. It was about the sort of uh, truth and reconciliation and, and things like that. And it was about mutual vulnerability, understanding the place of shame and guilt, and being very clear about if we are to move forward, if we are to speak truth, if we are to understand other without uh, another without othering we have to we have to create a context of mutual respect of mutual vulnerability where we lay our weapons down and i think until we start to do some work on dismantling our churches in terms of their ideological basis of you know how we negotiate the space how we negotiate social relationships until we start to do that People will always be frightened of relationship. We need some really good theology on what is it to be in relationship with one another. If God calls us to love him, to love ourselves and to love others, then you know that should be a framework in which we yes. relate to one another.
0: I think uh, I'm going to be Christian in a second, but I think there's something about relationships. So one of the things which I've, I've definitely picked up would be um, some of the challenges I've seen with black and brown members of, of churches saying to me, I'm, I'm struggling with all these white social media posts um, because when I then look down their, their Instagram pages, I don't see any of these guys have any black friends. And their, their point is this, it's like you're saying one thing, but it doesn't seem to play out in your relationships. So I always say to people, if I'm in relationship with you, you can ask me anything because we've, 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 we've been yeah. friends. And, and I keep saying to people, some, some, of, my, some of my white friends have not texted me in this period of time to say, Ben, how you doing? But you know what, that's actually okay because they're the same white friends who were in the trenches with me when Stephen Lawrence was murdered or when I went through my own stuff or when other things have happened. It's not, so I'm not second question, I'm not like second guessing them. where well, on, on the flip side, some of my white friends have been all over me and said, how are you doing? But that's okay. I think what people are struggling with is you don't talk to me on a Sunday. <laughs> you don't talk to me on a Sunday. Now it's Black Lives Matters. And I think that it's, that, it's that disconnect of, of relationships. So going back to Claire's question, my perspective is, do you know what? Actually, if you're consistent in your relationship, you're allowing people to belong of difference, of colour, different people in your circle, then these conversations and these, uh, how you then approach this stuff becomes a lot easier. But I'm, I'm gonna bring uh, Chris in, just just, just uh, come in with your, your comments on this question.
3: Thanks very much, Ben. Um, I, I... Want to affirm and um, agree with everything that, that Sharon and Elizabeth has said, um, and then maybe to add another another reflection to, to complement that, which is maybe coming from a slightly different different angle. And I, and I say it kind of quite hesitantly. Um, I remember many many years ago seeing um, the, the movie Malcolm X, and there was that iconic moment in the film where. A seemingly very genuine sincere white person comes up to malcolm x after he's spoken at a public meeting and says please can you tell me how i can help you in the struggle or words to yeah. that effect what can i do yeah. yes. and she's deflated when malcolm x gives her a one-word answer which is nothing yeah. go back to your own community and talk within your own community Yeah. Now, I don't want to put two and two together and make five, but I think part, one element of the conversation that needs to go on within white-led churches needs to recognise that for, I don't want to generalise, let me just say many white people rather than most, I'm not going to assume, whiteness is unexamined. We don't need to think about what it means to be white, not because we are consciously racist, but because we are usually in the majority. Yeah. Yes. Um, Yes. And so I think the first thing, and almost to go back to where I started, one of the things that we need to do within white-led churches and white people in wider society, I think, is to wake up we need, I think, to think in a conscious and a progressive and an inclusive way about what it might mean for me to be a white man in 2020 in a diverse, institutionally racist, unequal society as a Christian. What's that, what's that actually mean for me? Because if I don't have that internal conversation and that reflection with other white sisters and brothers, I think one of the things that Robert has written in the past is we don't have that kind of conversation we leave whiteness to the far right
0: yeah uh, there yes. needs
3: to be an alternative vision of what yes. whiteness might mean and um, that's a great point i think part of that is recognizing that white privilege is without a shadow of a doubt um something that needs to be faced up to and cannot be denied and should not be denied histories of white power, white supremacism, and church's collusion with that history. But I think it's also important to recognise, as I mentioned a moment to earlier, that something to do with the plurality of whiteness. So to talk about white people, my next question is, well, are we talking about Irish people? Are we talking about Polish people? Are we talking about? Yes. Do you know what I mean? So there is a plurality, yeah. I think, I that's somewhere.
2: Black that's, um, well.
0: Yeah, that's it's really helpful, um, and I think yeah, the Malcolm X point uh, I, I can definitely remember um, from the film, and it's is a really it's a really strong point. Um, I just want to come on. I want to bring Bishop Robin to this because I think one of the questions was to come up here, and you mentioned this. You were very candid at the start of your of your talk about your privilege and and your power and your agency as as a white man and one of the questions which has come from Douglas is um will the privileged white church ever let go of power and privilege does the privileged church voluntarily let go of power and privilege
2: um,
0: how, how can it be enforced if ever and I, I so i i'm i'm not just putting that on you rob it's not like you've got to have the the, the big answer but i know you mentioned it and i think I talk about a little bit about this in my book that in my belief it's until uh, white leaders who hold the power lay it down and, and allow black and ethnic minority leaders to to run with with churches and leadership know it, and they know the communities we're never going to be able to really get at this this interracial uh, church which Sharon has so eloquently spoken about. So I'll just be interested just in your view on that. Can, can, can the privileged white church ever let go of power and privilege? Can it be done? Um,
5: uh, well, we believe in the God of grace who works miracles and all the rest of it. So, I, I, you know, that, that's uh, got a slightly fl- flippant response to start off with. Um, um, but but uh, yes, I do think it can happen. It has to come with intentionality. Uh, it has to come with a deep sense of 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 purpose. And I think it goes back to that comment of uh, certainly that I, I feel very strongly about, you know, I, I am not the global majority in the place where, where I am and, 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 and with who I am. And so there's something about, you know, how do we how do we recognize, um, particularly as we kind of look at statistics and all the rest? How do, how do we recognize that actually white privilege isn't isn't the, the, the global majority? Um, and then I think there's a, there's a question of to what extent, I and mean, I'm just thinking of the Church of England for now, you know, if, if numbers of those attending Church of England continues to do the, you know, to go down as, as, as they seem to be doing, um, and in London, you know, if we are 1.7% of the population and 8% of the population are Christian, then actually the the, the focus becomes for me about how do we become that mighty prayer for the world, which is about sort of saying, actually, it is the church. It is the church that's at stake, not not becoming defensive. You know, my job isn't to save the Church of England. My job is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ who transforms unjust societies and transforms communities. That's my task, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. that comes from a deep-rooted sense of discipleship and, and, and calling. So if anything I noticed it came up on the chat earlier on you know, if anything, that the, that, that, you know, it leads us to a place of, of, of being on our knees mm-hmm. and recognize the place of influence that we have, but also recognize that actually, you know, uh, the, the Church of England as such, isn't the, the, the extraordinary um, institutional power that it once was. And so therefore, in order for Christ to speak, in order for, 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 for Jesus to be wholeheartedly at work in our communities, then actually there has to be a laying down of power which actually encourages us with a deep sense of, of, of ecumenism and you know, a deep sense of wanting to work alongside different denominations. And, and, and for the sake of the wider communities, because for me, if 8% of the population are, are, are committed Christians in London, then actually, my focus needs to be on the ninety-two percent who aren't. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's really. Sort of about yeah. the, the, the dynamics, which I think are really important ones for, for us to grapple with. And actually, from the glimmers of of, of conversations that I see in our, you know, in, in certainly in the in the rooms that I that that I'm in, there, there is a desire to have that conversation,
0: which which I'm I'm really hopeful for. It's really, it's really, it's really, really good and really helpful. And I think. We've heard about repentance, uh, getting on our knees, having those honest conversations. I think that's where I always have this phrase where um, we can strategize as much as we want, but ultimately we have to leave room for the Holy Spirit. And I think too much times it's, we don't do that. Um, whereas I think what we're seeing at the moment, the spirit of the Lord is moving in the hearts of men and women in a way to bring them to this this. this this posture of repentance, in a way which we have not seen, you know, hearts are being softened. I um, there, there are multiple questions, but I'm aware that we've only got 12 minutes left. And therefore I want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity in our panel just to, with any final thoughts. Uh, I would ask you just to keep it to a couple of minutes, um, but um, I, I, it'd be great. So Robert, you've been very patient because you started uh, first. So any, final reflections or thoughts or anything you're trying to say off the back of what you've heard so sure. yeah,
1: sure. three things really quickly i think that um the institutional churches white-led churches can change it's just simply having the political will for the change to take place i think there are three key areas where if they were to put the energy and effort into them it would lead to medium-term uh, uh, transition long-term benefits for a more inclusive church. First thing is you just need to decolonize the theological education curriculum. That's the starting point. If you have a way in which you teach the priests who are being trained, priests, ministers, so that they are much more equipped to understand the biblical text diversely, do diverse ministry, develop the language, what Audrey Lord calls moving from silence language to action. Job done. It's the first thing that you need to do. The second thing is, I think there's a real problem with church music. I think most people listen to more songs about God than they hear sermons, good job, uh, in some cases. But, um, but so what would happen, Emma, what would happen, you know, if we were to actually write songs now that encourage this kind of think- thinking around these issues? Why can't we have songs about what God, how, how do we deconstruct whiteness? What does the spirit have to say about that? That's why I think our songwriters are letting us down. I think Matt Redmond and co are part of the problem at the moment and part of the solution. So we need a whole new hymnody to help direct people. Third thing, which I think is critical in this is, somebody needs to get hold of the Archbishop of Canterbury and re-educate him on these issues. Because I think what happens at the top has a profound impact on what happens um, elsewhere. So if the Archbishop of Canterbury doesn't get it and isn't speaking out, then it has an impact on uh, what other people, how, how much this is prioritized by the clergy going forward as well. So those three areas, decolonize the curriculum, Rethink the hymnody, because that's the main source of theological ideas for most people in the church. And somebody needs to say to the Archbishop of Canterbury, you need to come to Queen's College for a month and be schooled on these issues so that you understand how race, theology, history, or, or if you can't come to Birmingham, go to New York. Because the Episcopal Church have got a handle on this. You know, they'll put you up in a nice hotel, uh, in some <laughs> nice restaurants, hang out with Mike <laughs> Lee. But you need to understand these. <laughs> because you cannot permit the, uh, it's the uh, organization for us to take
0: that. I mean, language. that's so helpful. And there's two things here. One, um, obviously, Bishop Rob's got his number, and so uh, that's an offline conversation to make sure. That's a that's an action <laughs> point for Rob. I, I heard get the Archbishop to New York to meet Spike Lee. That's what I heard. And I've got a Spike Lee story. I met Spike Lee once. And to be fair, he wasn't actually as interesting as his wife. His wife was a lot more interesting than he was. But that's another story for another time. Um, I'm going to move on to Dr. Elizabeth Henry. Final points.
2: Yeah. Um, I think you 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 obviously planned this well, me following Robert, because... Um, <laughs> I would go, yeah, I agree with decolonizing the theological curriculum. However, I would say this, and I'm going to say this about the Church of England. It's not a however, it's an and. The Church of England is the second biggest provider of education after, let's say, public, the the state education, the national education. Decolonize the curriculum in our schools. Why are our children not learning about the real history of this country and the history as it relates to global majority people. And I'm talking about true history. I'm not talking about the, anody- the anodyne and the, you know, the, the diluted history, but that, that's something because we've got to think not only about this generation, but about future generations as well. And we absolutely need that. So I definitely agree with that. I'm minded about power, by the way, because that has come up a number of times. And I think it was Edmund Burke that said, power is never surrendered willingly. And I have to say this, this is, this is not a new concept or construct that you know, those with power have to be prepared to relinquish that power it will be the first time in history by the way if that happens because it's never happened in history before does that mean it could never happen no of course it doesn't but it, but but i think that people in power need to answer how and when and in what way they will relinquish that power because that conversation is not being had it 's being had by people like us it 's not being had at those levels in relation to um, in relation to this this whole event and in what 's happening in this country and in the western world in in general i 'm with you Ben, and I believe as you do that what has happened in the last, well, let's start from COVID and, you know, our response to COVID in this country. I'm still hearing daily. There was a, a few weeks ago, there was a webinar. I know you said be quick. So a few weeks ago, there was a webinar. And in that webinar, there were over 300 nurses, of the of, of, of global majority heritage and those nurses said again and again and again in that webinar that they are being placed disproportionately on covid wards if that is true or if it isn't true it is their perception and it is their belief we are not there but if 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 and i believe they are those sorts of things are happening if, as we know, we've talked about COVID already. And by the way, talking only about poverty in COVID, I don't think is being true in the sense that we know that the first 10 doctors that died were of global majority heritage. And so it, 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 what I am saying is, yes, poverty is a huge and major role in this. But there is a, there is a race role in this that is yet to be unpicked. And I'm talking about COVID, COVID-19 here. Talking about will, and this is the final thing that I would say, as you know, um, as of Friday, I, I was no longer the national advisor to the Church of England. And in my farewell letter, I said that I did not believe that the Church of England has the will I believe that in principle, the Church of England definitely wants to be and is aiming and thriving to be a church for all. But what it takes in practice for the Church of England to do that, I did not believe that the will was there for what it takes in practice. And that encompasses power. Exchange of power that encompasses being truth talking that encompasses looking at one's own position and one's own role in so it encompasses it encompasses decolonizing the cricket, it encompasses all of that. And I hope and pray I want to be wrong. I want to be very, very, very wrong about this. Mm. And I, for one, will continue to help the church to strive for that goal.
0: Thank you so much for those words. Very, very powerful, Dr Elizabeth Henry. Um, I will go on to uh, Reverend Dr Sharon Prentice.
4: Mm -hmm. Very quickly, I've got, um, I think it was St Augustine that says that hope has two daughters, anger.
2: Yeah, that's right.
4: And also, what was the other the other doctor? Courage. Who,
2: courage. courage.
4: Yeah, the courage. courage change. Yeah. Just out of my head. Obviously, bedtime. Um, first of all, we have to we have to acknowledge the colonial ten- tentacles are still with us, and until we start to um, acknowledge that and make that explicitly known, um, then that will always be in the background of who we are and what we at. The social and political context is important. It's really dangerous, I feel, and false for the church not to acknowledge that. The church is not neutral where those things are concerned. And we only have to look at the news today to see uh, a political leader using a church as a backdrop with a Bible in in, in their hand. So, you know, we, we, we've got to be able to speak about that. And as a church, we can't ask others to be united and to seek peace unless we are ourselves places of peace and unity. So we have to practice what we preach essentially. And I just want to end with this, that my sisters and brothers, particularly in the West Midlands, are asking these questions. In the current situation, how can we be honest about the brokenness we see and the brokenness that we are how can we be active participants in paving the way for justice for all people and a fairer and equitable not equal in in terms of equality equitable sort of right the wrong misjustice and the wickedness that's evidence in our midst and and what are the steps do we as the church in relation to our communities have to take to start to undermine some of the rhetoric that's going around both COVID and also the disparities. And I think they're going to emerge over the next few weeks. We have to be prepared to challenge and speak into and to stand up um, around those issues. So those are, those are my points.
0: Thank you so much. Um, Really, again, profound. Thank you. Uh, Dr Chris Shannon.
3: Thank you, just very briefly. um, I think it's important to rewind the clock. Just over 50 years, the last major campaign that Martin Luther King Jr. mounted was the Poor People's Campaign and um, Martin Luther King referred to poverty as an octopus. I think we need to think of the the situation that that we're facing at the moment in relation to COVID-19, the ongoing age of austerity and the institutional racism that we see around us, the um, structural inequalities that we see around us, as that kind of octopus that Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of. We need to recognise that there is this unholy trinity, as I said earlier, this combination between systemic sin, institutional racism, structural inequality, and COVID-19. COVID-19 has um, unveiled, revealed that unholy trinity that many of us know has been there but has been lurking in the shadows for many years. I think as we grapple with this within the white led church and within the black led church, we are at a kairos moment that moment of judgment that moment of opportunity and the challenge it seems to me is to recognize that as churches often we're not bad at charity but we're often pretty bad at social justice Um, good at the feeding the person but not so good at challenging employers to pay a living wage So we need, it seems to me, in relation to COVID-19, in relation to institutional racism, in relation to structural inequalities, to put God's preferential option for the oppressed into practice and into policy,
0: rather than simply preaching about it on a Sunday morning in the pulpit. Brilliant, thank you so much. And last but not least, uh, Bishop Rob. Uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, gosh, it's been so inspiring, isn't it?
5: Too, I've certainly been inspired by uh, hearing everyone's contributions uh, tonight. I think, for me, just the kind of few takeaways which which I've got summing up things is, it begins with me, and I don't mean that just for me, me sort uh, of sake, but actually, it's a question that all of us need to ask in terms yeah. of kind of looking inward. Yeah. This is not someone else's problem. This is my problem, yeah. in terms of our response. I think there's something, too, about uh, to whom are we listening. I think there's a challenge for all of us to go through our social media lists and, and things like that, you know, Twitter and all the rest of it, to ask who are we, who are we listening to and who are we therefore excluding as a, as a result of all that. And, and you know, that what, what Covid has taught me, certainly in my patch, is to, to look at and listen to the extraordinary stories where communities have worked together, not because the government's told them to do it or whatever, they've worked together to create some sort of sense of working towards the common good. And so for mm. me, there's a challenge here about how we're listening to the poor, how we're listening to the voices that we might otherwise uh, exclude. And uh, then to see, certainly from my, my perspective as a bishop, how we're how we managing um, partnerships and developing partnerships to happen. Because I, 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 I believe there's something also for us in terms of being able to speak out and speak prophetically uh, using the power that we do have um, but we can only do that if we can speak about traction and we can speak about actually it, the reason why we're sharing this is because this is what's taking place on the ground level alongside everyday people. So there's a, there's a listening to local communities that needs to take place. Uh, um, but then there's also how do we how do we be prophetic from those partnerships uh, which get pulled together? Uh, and yeah. you know it's a lifetime's work. This won't happen overnight. I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of it's
0: a lifetime's work and, and I'm certainly up for the challenge. Yeah, so helpful. Thank you. I I just, um, uh, I just want to say thank you to all your guys' time, um, your wisdom. I've personally found this really healing. Um, I found this very hopeful. I think it proves that we can come together. Uh, we can have inspired conversations. We can, uh, all come from different backgrounds and different perspectives, but actually we're all on the same page where we want to see uh, a, a proper unified church and, and what that means to happen. My my just very quick uh, takeaway on this, or just some, just a quick opinion, is I do think actually the time for talking is done. Personally, I think um, I, I'm probably,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, I, think, I think this is good, and I think it it's good because hopefully it will help enable action and mobilise people but I think actually the time for for talking is is over and the three things I believe need to happen and this is just my opinion. um, I think first and foremost we know that we've now got government evidence it's not just anecdotal but we know that COVID-19 disproportionately impacts black and brown people so therefore for me I believe that what I would like to see is the churches the UK church come together and create a fund a very targeted fund specific to those poorer, most impacted communities, who we know who they are, who are uh, impacted by by COVID nineteen, if we can get sixty five churches together for a a song, the blessing song, which was a very good song, we can get all these different churches together to put a fund Brilliant. where we can we can actually very specifically and very quickly get money out to the people who are uh, who, who need it. So that would be the first thing. I think the second thing is, is agency and advocacy. I think, uh, particularly with the Church of England, you guys are, have got the power to connect into to government, uh, to impact the House of Lords, all this type of stuff. And I believe, like today is an example, when there's a delay about a report, what I wanna see is the churches with the advocacy and the agency, and going back to Robert's point about social justice, knocking on the door of the prime minister knocking on the door of these ministers and actually challenging them and moving things very quickly um there are many other uh different uh, mandates and ideas which people are putting together i want the church to get behind these people because i think there's agency and advocacy there and the final thing i want these are those are both kind of short-term uh very quick wins in my opinion, but I want a long-term, what I believe if we are going to protect this generation and future generations, so they don't walk away from the church, young black and brown people, I am calling for a UK wide church audit survey for the black and brown experience in the UK. And this is something which I would like to see every three or four years happening. So we get a true picture of what is the experience of black and brown people in a church context and then that feeds into any strategy that we deliver and those are the three things that i personally think needs to happen to take us a step forward i'm not the prime minister i'm not the archbishop it's just i'm just a kid from southeast london with a couple of opinions but i that is personally why i think if we're going to move forward that's where we want to go i've done enough talking I want to say thank you so much. I want to say thank you for everybody who's tuned in to Zoom. For everybody who couldn't get on YouTube and Facebook, I apologise, but I am going to upload this um, straight away and hopefully people can see this tomorrow. Sharon, Reverend Dr Sharon, would you like to close in prayer for us? And then we can end the evening.
4: Okay. Let's come together. Lovely God, we have had the opportunity to fellowship, to listen, to hear your heart, to be moved by the stories. And Father, we pray that this is the start, that this is just a microcosm of what's happening right across this nation. And we pray, Father, for your spirit to inhabit your people. We pray, Father, for the work that's going on, We pray for those that are at the cusp of this, who feel it acutely. Lord, transform our structures, transform our institutions, transform our very church to be the glorious church that you died and rose for. We thank you, Lord, that this is the start of something. And we pray for your protection and your wisdom and your strength as we continue to be a united people called by your name to go out into the world. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Just a reminder that if you would like to donate to Powder Fight, which empowers communities to end finance. violence, please just go to our website and hit the donate, donate button. But I want to thank you, our guests again, our panellists. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your time. And thank you for everybody who engaged on Zoom and is going to be watching this on YouTube in the next few hours, days, and months, and hopefully years. Thank you so much, thank everybody. Thank Ben.
1: Thank you, Ben, for organising. Thank
0: you.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Ben. And thank you all who came on this. Yes. Yeah. Big shout
0: out, thank you you very much. God bless everybody. Appreciate it. Take care. (laughs) Nice one. Take care. Bye bye. Bye -bye. Bye now. Bye -bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.